This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullen. Today, I sit down with Roger Helen to discuss dwelling in the presence of God, which is the topic of his book, Pursuing God's Presence. You may be thinking, what does it mean to pursue God's presence? And how do I do it? Or you may be thinking, this is hyper-spiritual and I'm not interested. But I want you to know Roger addresses those questions, along with speaking to holiness in today's culture and why that matters, prayerful living, and the power of the Spirit in our lives. After listening, I would be grateful if you share this conversation with a friend. You can do that via text message, email, or on social media. The best way for people to tune in to Grace Enough is by faithful listeners like you sharing the show. It really does make a difference. Good morning, Roger, and welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am excited to be with you. We were talking a little bit earlier about all the beauty um, that you experience up in Canada, and I typically don't ask this, but tell us a little bit about where you are right now, where you're from, those types of things, what you do, uh, just so our listeners can get a little acquainted with you. Amber, thank you. I appreciate all your great listeners out there. I My name is Roger Helland, and I serve as the prayer ambassador for the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, which is really an umbrella organization that works with denominations, churches, ministry organizations, and uh, theological schools. So we have a very broad network of, of an audience that is very wide. Yeah. And our mission really is to bless Canada in the name of Jesus as we unite evangelicals. So we have uh, connections with the World Evangelical Alliance globally, and then so we're the Canadian sort of expression. So that's sort of my role. I've been a pastor. I've been a, a professor. I've been a denominational leader. And so the Lord has really placed a lot of you know, experience, but passion for the church. I love the church. I love the people of God and, and the mission of Jesus. So I'm in, actually in a place called Calgary. Most people would probably know around, about Calgary. The Olympics were held here yeah. way back when. Uh, it's a major city in the province of Alberta, uh, just north of Montana. Uh, before that, I lived in Kelowna, British Columbia, in the interior, beautiful place. But I'm actually American. I just want to put that in there. I grew up in Southern California. I'm a California boy. I'm a Los Angeles Dodgers fan, and I hope that doesn't offend anybody, but that is my team. And uh, so I grew up in Southern California, just uh, east of Los Angeles in a community called Glendora. And uh, so I've got my uh, stars and stripes in my heart, but I'm also a citizen of Canada. So I got dual citizenship, three, three children, my wife and I. Uh, she's Canadian. So uh, been able to navigate a North American expression for ministry. So that's really neat. Well, so tell me, as we today are going to be talking about your book, Pursuing God's Presence, tell me a little bit about how you came to know Jesus, about your early faith journey. That's how I start the book, actually, because I want people to know the background. And so right. when people ask me, well, what's your background? I I have a word, one word answer. I was a pagan. <laughs> uh, I don't say that <laughs> lightly or in a way of, of uh, <clears throat> you know, dismissive, but it's, uh, yeah, I grew up in a non-Christian family, basically in Southern California. We didn't attend church, read the Bible, pray. Jesus was a swear word in our family. Mm -hmm. If you can understand the context of that. And, you know, my parents, uh, they tried their best and they weren't antagonistic to Christianity, but we just, it wasn't, in our wheelhouse and right. you know, the religious people in the church and the Bible. And I mean, it's part of American culture in a lot of ways, but uh, just, we lived a secular life basically. Mm -hmm. And, and yet <clears throat> as a young person growing up in Southern California, 
you know, I got involved in a lot of dark living. <laughs> I don't, I won't go into a lot of the detail around that. People can, I think, understand when I talk about the word pagan. Mm-hmm. So I got involved with the wrong crowd and, you know, in high school, like a lot of young people do, <clears throat> and found my way further and further falling into the darkness. However, it was on the fringes of the Jesus movement. So th- this Jesus Revolution movie that yeah. came out really portrays sort of the generation that I grew up in, although I was on the fringes. I wasn't really a part of the Jesus movement, but I was on the fringes of it in Southern California. And I'd heard of different things going on. And so by this time, I was in the U.S. Army and I was home on Christmas leave. And, I, you know, again, my lifestyle was, okay, it's time to party. I'm yeah. home on leave from boot camp. And I got together with one of my buddies that we used to take LSD with and, you know, do drugs and alcohol and all the rest of it. But he'd become what they call back then a Jesus freak. Yeah. He actually came to faith. So he sort of walked away from that lifestyle, but he spent time with me. And we went up to a place in Glendora that overlooks the city where we used to go up and party together as high schoolers. And he began to share the gospel with me. And I'm going like, whoa, dude, here <laughs> I'm taking on LST. No kidding. They say, don't ever witness to a drunk or a person on drugs. The Holy Spirit can get through anybody. And he got oh, through. yes. He got through to me. And I could feel this tug on my heart. Literally, I felt a tug on my heart to say my first prayer when I heard mm-hmm. the gospel. And I said, Jesus, if you're real, I want to believe. That was the, the starting place uh, for my conversion experience. And uh, a couple weeks later, I, I was back in Fort Lewis, Washington in the Army. It was a Saturday morning. And it was bright blue sky. It was freezing cold outside. And I felt this sense of the presence of God. I, mm. you know, I look back on it now, and that's that's what it was. And then I didn't know. It was like this inrush of joy and, and light that just penetrated my heart and soul. And I knew there was a, a change. And from that point on, that was the trajectory where my life began to, to shift. And over time, the Lord began to purge me of my lifestyle and bring me into environments for Christian faith and discipleship as the years went on. And I'm still an unfinished work, but I'm a work yep. in progress and I'm, I'm a lot better than I used to be. Amen. <laughs> yeah. So, and that set the whole narrative towards where I am today. So I, I, I kind of write about this at the beginning pages of from pagan to pastor. And then that's a whole other side of how I became a pastor and then committed to prayer and then committed to presence. So that's kind of the narrative of, even what that book portrays. So that's yeah. yeah that's- well, and I love that you use the word purge, right? Because sometimes yeah. there's that idea that yes, you become a new creation immediately, but yeah. there still is a purging process. Purging process. Yeah. Sanctification. That's a that's theological right. word. It's called being made holy. In, that's right. Jesus. And, and that's a work of the spirit and the scripture and confession, repentance, and just spiritual formation. So the yes. Lord definitely wouldn't let me off the hook. He wanted me to follow Jesus. And that's what has been my lifelong Mm. passion. Yeah. I love it because in your book, you talk about how you're convinced that people that one of our biggest problems as followers of Jesus is that we don't consistently dwell in the presence of God. And so Let's talk about that a little bit. Like, what is the difference between a follower of Jesus who is dwelling in the presence of God and someone who isn't, or is I'm a Christian more by name per se? Yeah, you know, that that's a great question. Over the years, as I've explored different facets of what we would call discipleship and spiritual formation and following Jesus and you know, being a Christian, there's a lot of different traditions and and frameworks of of what that looks like. But I think I keep going back to the scripture. I keep seeing the clear teaching where we are invited to seek God, to seek his kingdom, to seek his presence, to, as it were, uh, you know, repent and believe the gospel and follow Jesus, become his apprentice, right? So the whole discipleship framework is one that is clear, it's compelling, but I've also learned as a pastor in my own personal life, it's it's not an easy road to just sort of profess, you know, the Christian faith. And I believe in Jesus and I go to church, right? And that, that can become right. sort of the, the nominal approach. And yet our culture has so many factors that sort of counteract that. And so I've, I've really, in my own personal life, but also pastoral life, sought to dwell 
in the presence of God. That is mean to abide, to, the Bible calls it to seek God's face. Uh, mm. To seek his face is really to seek his presence, to seek who he is. Um, invisible God, so that requires a whole lot of, a number of different practices to help us get there. So it means to abide, to take up residence, to, to lodge in him as the central pursuit of life. And uh, it's a continual practice. It's an orientation. It's a priority. And I think until we sort of land in the place of what are our central priorities, we have a lot of competing ones that come in and displace the centrality of seeking God dwelling in his presence. And so that's what I try to develop, you know, throughout in different chapters, what, how it pertains in our family and our career, mm-hmm. in, in our workplace, in, in our churches, out in the world in, in terms of mission personal life and holiness and, and consecration. So comprehensive, but I think we're called to that. And I think it's yeah. doable. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes too, it's complicated. It can be complicated to help people embrace like an unsegmented life yet still, you know, still dwelling. Like you can do your schoolwork and dwell in God's presence. You can do your vocation yeah and seek God's face. You can X, Y, or Z. And I get that that's difficult because we kind of, in a lot of ways are taught to live segmented lives, right? Keep all your priorities kind of in these check boxes. Yeah. You know, we've got church and then we've got work and then we've got family and then we've got vacation and then we've got recreation. We've got Mm -hmm. all these different sort of, like you say, segmented, but I think the scripture is really clear, especially yeah. Proverbs and other places, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The centrality of living on Jesus is where our center has to be really located. And then everything else flows out of that. But if the center is something else, then God gets displaced and consigned to the religious category. Uh, and I oh, think that's, yeah. it's not a biblical framework. Uh, it's mm. easy to do. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a default. So I'm making a case for seeking his presence as a central priority. It's, it's kind of the operating system and everything else mm. flows from that. Yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Well, and we can't discuss your book without talking about the word. Now, listen, I'm, I'm going to see if I can say it correctly. <laughs> Kavod? You got it. Did you I do did it? it? Amber, congratulations. Yes, Kavod. You were so kind to us in the book to put like the phonetic saying of it. And I Have practiced to. and practiced. People want to call it Kabod, Kabod, Kabod. I get well, it. Well, and you want to say Kavod in a way, but it's like, no, it's Vode. So, anyways, it's Kavod. Yeah. And it's... you have said that there really isn't a good English word to describe that. And so I find that with a couple of different words in scripture that once we understand and and kind of wrap our mind around that Hebrew word, it helps us. And so what does that mean? What is that? And why is that so important to pursuing God's presence? Wow. You know, I'm, my heart is already starting to pump fast when I hear you ask this question. And the reason is because the word kavod is kind of like the word shalom. Okay, mm. so shalom. How do we translate shalom? Well, peace. Mm, but it's more. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have an English word to capture shalom. It, it's about wholeness. It's about heaven on earth. It's about peace and, and harmony and the vitality of God. You know, there's no English word that we we can do. So peace is the best thing that we can come up with. Kavod is really the same way. Glory is 
generally the word that is used to translate kavod. But glory is a very abstract. What does glory mean? Well, yeah. it's radiance, it's bounty, it's beauty, it's this, it's that. You know, glory be to God. And what are we saying? You know, but really to get behind the kind of the root lexical meaning, kavod refers to weight. It refers to something that is heavy. And you can be heavy with honor, uh, heavy with your reputation, with your wealth. We know that, you know, certain when people, their words carry weight, right? When mm -hmm. we say that, or somebody is very um, heavy duty in terms of their character, when they come in the presence of the room, the room is, is charged with a sense of electrifying excitement. So there are people that 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 occurs that's a sense of glory so kavod really when we talk about the kavod of god it's the glory it's the word of his presence mm. so if you think of coming into the presence of god this is not a light affair this mm -hmm. isn't god light l-i-t-e this is god heavy god is heavy he's heavy with holiness he's heavy with love he's heavy with grace he's heavy with power he's heavy with his attributes right yes, the weight yeah. of who god is is captured in the word hebrew word kavod so glory is it, it's his perfections it's the radiance of his perfections and his purity that's all sort of packed into the word kavod so that's why i like mm. to keep using it I'm, I'm creating sort of a concept for us to really explore when we think of the kavod the glory of god and we seek his presence it embodies all these characteristics. So that's why I want to keep using it. Tell me this, if someone is in that place where they want to begin pursuing God's presence, like how do you even start making that shift? That's a great question. Let me point to how we pursue other things. How do you pursue a career? How do you pursue an education? How do you pursue anything that captures your heart? Mm. Things we have passion for sports. We have passion for family. We have passion for career, for advancement. We have, we all have passion for a lot of different things. Right? Well, what drives the passion? What 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 is behind the motivation? When we're captured by something, we are drawn to pursue it. Yeah. Right. When it's a top priority, when it's a value, it's like we we often say we don't have time for that. We don't have to. Well, we have time for what's important to us. Yes. Right. So yeah. I think the first place, uh, at least for me, and I think biblically, is that when we are captured by who God is, his greatness, his goodness, his glory, that is compelling. And there are so many factors that sort of get in the way and displace God as the supreme search of our life that we pursue other things, right? And that really, the Bible would call that idolatry, right? Not mm -hmm. that we're idolaters. That, that's not my point. It's more anything that displaces soul affection for God uh, becomes an idolatrous sort of framework, right? So the framework for me comes out of uh, Psalm 105.4. That's really how this book is sort of structured, coming out of the, the very short but pungent exhortation where the psalmist says, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. See, mm. I'd say if we could even memorize that verse, it's pretty easy to memorize. In fact, I usually recite it just about every day. I'll be driving in the car. In fact, I was driving to the gym this morning. And I was actually reciting that verse. Again, I want to recalibrate my thinking, reorient myself, the North Star to pursue God and to have him uppermost in my thinking and my priorities to set the agenda for for the day. So I think those are some starters yeah. to orient ourselves to pursue presence of God uh, with a presence-centered life. Yes, I definitely agree with that. Like having a few of those shorter scripture verses that are that North Star for you. I know when my husband and I started even doing Psalm 23, like in the yeah. morning, you know, just taking that in, re like you said, reorienting to like, what is my life about? Well, the Lord right. is my shepherd, you know, yeah. and these are the things that he does, um, not just for me, but for the family of God. And I need to believe that. And one of the best ways to begin believing that is by reciting it and um, proclaiming it right over your own life. Right. As a sidebar, if we do, do an inventory of, of what or like if we check our cell phone a lot or text messages or emails or, you know, Instagram or Facebook, whatever, 
and we're oriented around social media, then that that's a center, right? Mm-hmm. So I think when we look at the choices we make, where we spend our money, where we spend our time, what we think about the most, really sure shows where our center or centers are at. So part of the mm-hmm. spiritual discipline that, you know, basically each chapter sort of outlines is how, how can we sort of recalibrate, reorient, and, and sort of engender that focal point that is, is settled. It becomes a default. Yeah, right. That's now, right. the presence of God is a default. It's not something I'm working out. It's something I'm cultivating. But I've already decided. And, and when I'm attracted with who God is, his power, his magnificence, now I want to seek him. Mm. More than anything else, I want to pursue yeah. his Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about prayerlessness, because that's something else that you write a lot about that I deeply appreciate, because I know even in my own life, having had seasons where I feel like I am so connected to God in my prayer life, and then having seasons where it just feels like such a battle, yet still trying to kind of you know, trudge through what I consider the mud at times. Um, you you write this. You said, as I pastored, I began to view prayer as the core spiritual practice that activated and sustained spiritual and missional renewal. I noticed I could not preach physical healing into people, counsel demonic oppression away from people, program chronic sin out of people, or argue the kingdom over people. I would watch church leaders like John Wimber gently pray, come Holy Spirit and witness mind boggling results. So tell me for you, what does daily prayer look like? Cause I think we can overcomplicate it yet. Right. Sometimes I think we can oversimplify it. Yeah. Timothy Keller says this everywhere. God is prayer is hmm. God is everywhere present. And one of the ways in which I have discovered life-giving elements to a life of prayer, not just praying, but having a life of prayer, Mm. is to view prayer as communion and communication with God. That prayer is not simply offering my list and my request to Him, which is often the case. Yeah. Uh, It's presence-oriented. So when I seek the presence of God through prayer, there are things that occur that won't happen any other way. You can't preach it. You can't teach it. You can't yeah. sort of program it. There, there's a relationship that is cultivated through the context of prayer. If you look at, there's over 650 prayers in the Bible, uh, not including the Psalms themselves. And they're rich with theological frameworks of um, communicating with God and appealing to God and arguing with God and lamenting with yeah. God. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. So prayer for me is less around a regimen and a duty and even a spiritual practice. It's more a life-giving. It's the oxygen of the soul for me. Mm. Uh, prayer uh, is conversation. I love pointing to the movie uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Okay. For me, Tevye, the milkman, he, he walks these streets in, in, in Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution and his family. You know, there's displacement and all kinds of things happening in the culture around tradition. But he talks to God about his issues. He's poor. He's got daughters that are all wanting to go in different directions. And he sort of looks up and <laughs> it's an amazing portrayal of what prayer should be really like in terms of conversation. There's times of devotion and, and silence and solitude and reflection, but then there's corporate and public gatherings. So for me, prayer is something I do every single morning. When I first get up, I'm usually up around 5.30 in the morning. It's just a regular routine as much as brushing my teeth or you know, shaving right. or taking a shower or having breakfast or coffee, whatever. It's a routine that has become a lifestyle that I I can actually tell if I'm not really locked into prayer. My day just is out of kilter. So I in the early in the morning, and the psalmists talk about early in the morning, my soul rises, you know, and I, I begin to talk and I, I, I systematically read through scripture is always part of the prayer. And I would say, number one, way to invigorate a life of prayer is to really be praying from scripture in public mm-hmm. gatherings whenever there's okay. prayer meetings but also in private public yeah. and private has to be scripture fed spirit led and so i'm reading through book with jeremiah right now and uh, it's a little bit of a tough go at times but i'm finding these nuggets <laughs> of, of theological statements and truths and promises that just kind of wow so i read it and i pray it and i live into it and so i'm i'm finding that you know, for me, prayer is 
praying without ceasing, praying before I come into meetings, pray as I'm teaching and preaching and having conversations with people. There's there's an inward sort of station that's on all the time. It's an FM station that's connected to heaven. And, and I try to keep mm. in tune with a wavelength of God and attention, uh, giving attention to how he put nudges and ideas and inspiration and things into my heart in the rank and file of day. It's not just something I do in devotions and then I'm off for the day. Right. For me, it's become praying without ceasing. It's a lifestyle of prayerfulness, like breathing. It's the oxygen of the soul. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting as I have children right now who are 13, 10, and seven. Okay. And particularly with my 13 and 10 year old, just trying to get them to kind of understand what prayer is yeah. um, and to begin doing it more just naturally right. has been much harder than I thought in the sense of even they at times will look at me. They're surprised to hear me say something like, well, have you talked to God about that? And it's almost like even there's freedom for them to think, oh, I can do that. This doesn't have yeah. to be this heavy, formal, rigid. Right. I can only do this after I've been in the word. You know, it's a both and. And yeah. so it, yes. it like, how do you or when you're thinking about that, how do you communicate that uh, to who? Well, to children, to adults, because I have seen adults struggle with it in the same way. Like it doesn't have to be this. Like, it's okay when you're washing dishes to just say, Lord, I acknowledge that you're here today and I welcome your presence. And that's prayer or to ask for something or to praise him or to confess. Like, it doesn't have to be all of these certain things all the time. So again, for me, it's more lifestyle. It's modeling. It doesn't have to be religious sounding. There's a place for that. Right. I, mean, I love the book of common prayer. I love structured prayers that are really yes. carefully. There's a real awesome place for that in a structured time privately or in a public gathering. But in the rank and file of life, what I try, like our grandchildren, for example, uh, you know, they're learning about prayer and talking about, gee, where is Jesus? And, you know, asking yes. questions and sort of modeling, praying, you know, uh, just short, talking to him in a way that's informal and not abstract, you know, trying to define terms and help them in their little world. And like, for example, um, when our kids and I talk about this in a home-based Bethel, I call it house of God in our home uh, with our children, you know, we prayed for their healing. My daughter had eczema on her hands and, you know, you get the cream and, and there's really not a very good, I don't think there's a cure for it. And we just said, well, let's just pray. So we prayed for her and asked her to pray and bam, the Lord healed her of eczema. Okay. Uh, we can go to that the doctor. That is awesome. Yeah, I mean, just kind of, we've we've tried to integrate it sort of in lifestyle and not make it into a sort of a big deal, but to make it natural. I like the word you use, natural, and invite them into the process. And they get a little nervous at times, and I get that. And yeah, they play, you know, they pray out loud. Or I said, you know, you can pray in your mind. You can just talk to Jesus about that, and let's see what happens, and come back around. Yeah, that that's helpful. I think sometimes for because I look at my kids sometimes and I think are they getting it? You know, and, right. and that's, that becomes a prayer for me, you know, Lord help them to just see you as ever present and know mm -hmm. that it's always open. You're always waiting and ready and glad to hear from us. So let's talk a little bit about the spirit. When you think about the indwelling of the spirit, you know, I'm one who believes that the spirit of the living God is in us and like no one takes that from us. But you talk a little bit about this long-term fullness of the Holy Spirit in a believer. Flesh that out for us a bit. Like, what do you mean by this fullness of the Spirit versus kind of this temporary filling of the Spirit? Yeah, great question. I've been a strong advocate, basically my whole spiritual leadership life in a Trinitarian theology where we give equal place, priority, status, and affection for each member of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics, they tend to sort of emphasize Spirit. Evangelicals tend to emphasize the Son and the Scripture. Uh, other traditions might emphasize the Father, and yet, you know, each of them play a substantial role. And I think even now, the Lord is seeming to sort of 
cross denominations, theological traditions to bring an awareness of the tr- Trinitarian mm. framework, I think, of the Christian faith is, is essential to really grapple with. So, but I think a lot of us evangelicals who maybe grew up in more conservative environments can become a little suspicious of, you know, Holy Spirit, <laughs> you yes. know, some of the things that go on oh, in yes. your Bibles and you kind of go, wow. And I'm going, okay, I'll tell you what, uh, look at Asbury Revival right for now. Yeah. Just to start there, right? That's a current expression of the presence of God that was so strong that people were lining up outside for hours to get inside. What is that? Not good preaching, not good worship, not good, you know, presentation. It, it, it's presence, right? And it all came out mm. of purpose and a welcome of his spirit, right? So uh, first of all, I think theologically, if we can do what we can to really cultivate a Trinitarian theology of, that includes due affection and embrace and welcome of the spirit, that, that's a helpful framework. The scripture has a lot of elements. So for me, uh, when we talk about presence, there's God's omnipresence. He's present everywhere. He's as far away as the universe goes as he is right inside our hearts, right? That's that's yes. that's mind-blowing, actually, when you think of it. Uh, but he's also, at times, manifest presence, uh, where mm. he, he comes in close. Things happen that are extraordinary at times. And to, to be sort of familiar with the ways in which God does and can and might function uh, by faith and through scriptural understanding puts us in a place of to pursue and welcome him. What we see in a more specific sense now to get more to your particular question, I find it very intriguing when you read the book of Luke and Acts particularly in uh, how Luke showcases the relationship between prayer and presence and the, the work of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. He starts with Jesus and then he moves it and shows how that is carried on in the book of Acts. So it's remarkable when you see Jesus at his baptism, he's the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And then he has the Spirit, he was full of the Spirit, and he was led into the, the Judean desert to be tempted. Mm-hmm. And then he came in the power of the Spirit out of that experience and went into Galilee. So he was endowed by the Spirit to carry out his supernatural work. So what Luke does is really interesting. Um, He uses the word pimplami when he talks about either Jesus or people like Peter and Barnabas, who were men that were full of the Spirit, Mm. right? They were saturated. They were permeated by, they were controlled by. It, it, it was a pervading characteristic of their life that was identifiable. Yeah. When people are full of the Spirit, they demonstrate the a radiance of the presence of God in their life that is compelling mm. the fruit, the empowerment, the, the the characteristics, the effects of his fullness, right? So that that's a word that, that uh, Luke uses. Actually, it's the word play rate. So the other word that uses piplomy that I mentioned, where where there's a spontaneous coming of the Spirit on or in people. We mm. see it in Acts 2 4, where the Spirit came upon the, the upper room right. disciples who were praying and the manifestation and, and how the impartation of the outpouring of the Spirit occurred. And he uses the word fill. They were filled. It was in the moment. There was this infusion of manifest presence for the moment, right? Yeah. Uh, he also talks about that, of how they were at a prayer gathering and the, they were filled with the Spirit and they proclaimed the gospel with boldness in Acts chapter 4. And the house shook, right? Same word, diplomy. But it, that refers to more of a spontaneous in the moment uh, infusion mm. of the Spirit. And it lifts. So it isn't like it's a long lasting, you just got this electrical sort of eruption of the presence of the Spirit. So there, there's two kind of frameworks that we see uh, in scripture, when Paul talks about be filled with the spirit, a lot of people go to that. It's actually the word I'm talking about be have the characteristics of the spirit resident in your life as an ongoing practice, right? Yes. Uh, Luke is really the only one that talks about the filling, where there's this spontaneous infusion of, of power and, and authority and boldness that can come upon believers when they're preaching, teaching, praying, worshiping, walking in his power, uh, and it's Christ-centered. So I think that framework is really helpful to understand. I remember when all was going on with Asbury and some of the pushback from some conservative evangelicals. And it was just such a challenging thing because as someone who definitely has spent more of my Christian life in those circles, yet 
also having a spouse who we appreciate John Wimber and all of his teaching about the spirit of God and the way that he has seen healing take place. It's hard to wrestle through, like there seems to be truth on both sides, you know, and it makes me sad to think that it's even a side thing, like where one is trying to disprove the other. Do you feel that tension a lot? Oh, yeah. Uh, so people, I've walked it. <laughs> it's so hard, isn't it? <laughs> I've, walked, I've walked in a lot of different camps, right? And yes. I respect, I love the church. You know, yes. there are so many different traditions and theological emphases, and there's different style, different substance. But I've always tried to make a case. You don't have to be a conservative or a charismatic to yes. experience the fullness of the presence mm. uh, and power of God, right? It's not, God is not consigned to a, a, a specific Amen. theological tradition. All of our traditions have, I think, blind spots. They're, none of them are whole and complete and perfect, you know. So we have this variety of, of, I think, traditions. And I think my experience has been, and being with the EFC is really helpful because we've got really tried and true Bible-believing, not that we shouldn't be Bible-believing in all traditions, but you know what I'm saying, like, conservative churches. <laughs> and, and I respect our dear friends. We've got some very strong charismatic friends, but everything in between. And right. so for me, I'm a pietist. So I, I kind <laughs> of... Maybe that's, that's what I am. <laughs> Maybe that's where I land. <laughs> yeah. So I, I sort of... And people say, well, how do you navigate all these different... I just go, I just, I don't know, look at the scripture, lean yeah. into the scripture, learn the scripture, try to live the scripture, mm. experiment, you know, revise, shape, and do your theology when the context of scripture in, in, in your life and leadership and, and follow God. And I, it, mm. it works. It yeah. works. Or I, I will say this, wherever the spirit is very active and effervescent, there's pushback, there, there's tension, there, there's um, misunderstanding, there's error that can happen, there's excesses that can happen. Get that. But that is part of the journey. Jesus was opposed. He was a man of the spirit. He had antagonism and misunderstood. And the things of the spirit and the presence of God are easily misunderstood. It can be very familiar for some and unrecognizable for others. And so that's part of the journey of faith is to be attentive to God. Keep in his word, keep testing, keep working in community and walk it out in a way that is life-giving. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it's, I mean, it's yeah. just so true. So when you talk about behaving in the spirit, we're going to kind of start shifting a little bit more towards holiness. Don't anybody yeah. turn off the podcast because um, people tend to get a little up in arms when we start talking about behavior. But what do you mean by behaving in the spirit? The Bible calls it walk by the spirit, live by the spirit. Uh, so when we walk by the spirit, it's a military term to mean to walk in kind of a cadence. So I was in the U.S. Mm. Army. I know what I know what cadence is. is one, two, left, right, left, right. One, two, three, four. You know, cadence. Yes. We all get cadence. musicians understand cadence of rhythm of song. So that's when we walk to the rhythms of the spirit. He's the choreographer. If we can tune into how the spirit leads us and walk according to his guidance, to live and lead by the spirit, to walk by the spirit, that is behaving in the spirit. I'm not talking about behaviors that we construct by rules or regulations, like a holiness mm -hmm. behavior construct. No, it's walking in the spirit. It's being led by the spirit. It's being surrendered to the spirit. It's being following the spirit because he, he takes the lead. He's on mission. Mm -hmm. He's not sitting back in his rocking chair and taking a break. No, no, no. He is active all the time. Mm -hmm. So to walk and live by the spirit, these are biblical categories that, and often they're in the present tense. They mean it's an ongoing lifestyle. So I try to unpack some of that. We, we, we believe into the spirit. We ask for the spirit. We are sensitive to the spirit. We operate by the gifts of the spirit. We are endowed by the spirit. We have mm -hmm. the dwelling presence of the spirit. He's taken up habitation in our hearts. We're his temple. He wants a holy place to live in. He doesn't want ah. a lot of trash in the living room. He wants a clean house and he'll help us clean it up so he can have more dominion right. uh, in, our, oh. in, his, in his residence. Yeah. It, it's wonderful. But that's what it means to behave. Not just believe in the spirit, like the Apostles' Creed, 
not just from a doctrinal statement, a theological category. No, no, no. It's behaving. It's it's orienting our character and our conduct in alignment with, with the Spirit's effervescence. Yes. I love what you say about he wants a clean house to increase like his dominion, his presence there, because sometimes we can get so caught up, particularly as a young believer in thinking that if I just behave this way, it's almost like that earning mentality. And I've had to talk to my kids with that. I, I lead some middle school girls and I can see it in them. And I think that's a school mindset, right? Like I got to earn my grades in order to be this type of student. And so, but looking at it in that way, like, no, it's not an earning. No, it's a feeling like a a feeling, not a, (laughs) that's my country coming out. Not a feeling of, as in you feel something, but you're being filled by the Holy spirit. Yeah. Okay. So tell me this. You say, how did mega church pastors, Bill Hybels, Carl Lentz, and Bruxy, is that Savvy? Cavey. Cavey. Canadian pastoral leader. How did they start well and build global platforms only to flame out? I am wary of unaccountable, personally driven leaders whose charisma overshadows character and whose persuasion overshadows presence. We can all traffic in truth without holiness. So let's talk about that holiness and consider, you know, what does it mean to consider holiness as proximity to God's presence? Wow. Uh, I spent a whole chapter trying to unpack that. I know. So Uh, everybody needs to read the book. That's the whole purpose of this. (laughs) I appreciate that. And there's entire books that grapple with the the topic of holiness is, is another big word. It's a big category. It's hard to sort of capture it all without it sounding stuffy or religious or Puritan or these and thou and you're holier than thou. And I get there's all that, you know, there's the holiness movement. And yet I had a denominational leader say to me a couple of years ago, you know, I I serve in a holiness movement that needs holiness. Mm. You know, like holiness isn't something that we just call. It's something that we are, that we embrace. By the way, when I mention certain leaders, I'm not in any way attempting to be yeah. condemning. Or There's just sort of illustrations of some key leaders out there that have, for whatever different reasons, their character didn't quite stay strong with the pressures and things around them. And then the falls that are, yeah. can be great really have a lot of ramifications. And they do. I find... You know, we have a a leadership culture, a personality-driven culture often where it's centered around a certain personality. And That's right. You know, I mean, there's great personalities that can really inspire us. I get that. You know, Billy Graham would be one go-to type of a person, say, man, alive, right to the end of his life, boom. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet there's a great deal of, of falling that has occurred that is distressing. And so I think... And for me, I speak to myself, the, the character aspects of holiness is eminently important if we're going to seek the presence of God. It's not enough to just say, I'm, I need more of his power. Let mm. the power come, you know. I'm always trying to align again with scripture when the, the Bible tells us to pursue peace with all people and holiness yeah. without which no one will see God. That's Hebrews 12, 12 14. And there's multiple places throughout scripture where when we come into the presence of God, we're coming into proximity with his radiance, his glorious power, but his holiness, because everything that God is, is holy. His love is holy. His power is holy. His goodness is holy. His um, mercy, and- mercy, everything. You see, look at the sun, you know, it, the radiance of, of God's glory Again, I'm I'm grappling with the words because it's hard to capture the word holy, but holy is elegant. Yeah. Holiness is beauty. Holiness is when you come into his presence and you experience him in, in firsthand tangible way, you're experiencing his holiness. And mm. there, there's no sort of coming into the presence of God and just doing our own thing. There, there, there's the call to consecration, to being separate, to be surrendered, to be devout, to be pious, to be enthralled with the majesty of his perfections. Mm. Holiness invites that. And when that's who God is, 
Yeah. And so when we seek his presence, it implies holiness and its proximity to God. So wherever God shows up, it becomes holy. It's a sacred spot. It's a sacred place. It's a sacred day. It's a sacred nation. It's a sacred people. He wants sacred people that are holy, a holy kingdom, proximity. Wherever God is, there's holiness there. So that's my understanding of how holiness works practically. It's not a set of rules or regulations, these and those. I mean, there's things we shouldn't be doing. That's right. Holy people don't do certain things and they do other things. But if we're seeking the presence of God, the holiness becomes a permeating influence in our lives. And there's nothing like it. And a desire of our heart, right? Not to yeah. not to be perceived as how great thou art, but yeah. you get this desire to be like him in a humble type of way. Like I think about Colossians three, where it's telling you the things to put on and the things to take off. And it's like, God doesn't say that to us to burden us. He wants us to thrive in his kingdom. And in order to do that, there are certain things to experience his presence fully that we have to take off and put on. Right. Absolutely. And and the character of Christ, I call it Christian clothing, you know, putting on these yes. Christian virtues, they all embody holiness and the fruit of the spirit. And it's Christ likeness being shaped in us, in our character, in our conduct. That's mm. holiness. Yeah. And so when you talk to people, well, and I mean, I guess some people don't feel so put off by the word holy, but um, I think sometimes they can feel like it's a, a little bit more of a yoke of slavery than it is really living out the fullness of Christ. And so have you ever had someone kind of come to you with that type of feeling and how do you talk to them about it? Yeah, well, I point to the Pharisees. They are sort of a biblical example of being separate. They had all these rules and regulations that kept them away from uncleanness, right? Lepers, yeah. uh, Gentiles. The outside was clean. The inside was rotten. Republicans, sinners, right? So there was, holiness was a legislated religious orientation, right? It, it didn't have the life of God, the love of God. So holiness embodies yeah. love. So rather than trying to load people up with a set of rules and regulations, and they're going to become holy, better to invite them to experience the presence of God, his word, mm-hmm. his spirit, and teach them. And this is part of discipleship is yeah. helping people say no to sin and say yes to righteousness. Paul talks about that in Romans 6 and other places and how we are in the fear of God introduced into a posture that respects God's power and authority over our lives in every sector of life. And he invites holiness. And so, again, it, it, spiritual formation is one of the terms that's used. And how does that get done? It does have practices that we need. but It also has places where we make decisions. We're not going to do this. We're going to do that. Mm. There are rules that pertain, but they're driven by the capacity that we've been offered through the indwelling spirit and the scripture to enable us to have the power to walk as Jesus walked, Mm. not just sort of gun it out by human ingenuity, rules and regulations, and imposition of uh, that, you know, sort of expectation on people that actually burns them out and puts a weight on their shoulders that they can't bear. It's like punishing children for all their misbehaviors all the time and correction, correction, correction. It just deflates them. And then they rebel. That happens to people in the spirit room. But if we can invite grace and goodness and model and encourage and and support, I think that's a way better approach to holiness. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's close with this. When we're thinking about discipleship, what's our approach to discipleship in light of living in God's presence. I think that is discipleship. Jesus, here's my go-to passage. A lot of people go to Matthew 28. I I go to that, the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. But Jesus comes at it from an organic point of view in John 15. This is really where I teach around discipleship. It's presence-oriented. It's abiding in me, let my words abide in you, and you will bear much fruit, and you will prove that you are my disciples. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Well, then I think the goal for disciple making is to help people learn how to abide in Jesus, learn how to experience his presence, learn how to dwell in him and reside in him and live in him and pay attention to his word and how he speaks and how he shapes us and bears much fruit in our lives. And when we're bearing much fruit, we we show by our lifestyle that we are following him. And I would yes. ask, if we don't have much fruit, are we a disciple? 
or are we just sort of a believer that goes to church and sort of right. gives assent to Christian teaching? So I think mm. paying attention to the organic, John 15 is really yeah. a clear passage that unpacks all this and how following his commands and walking the love of God and the joy that is that comes out of that is really the present-centered discipleship paradigm that we're invited to participate in. I love that God gives us the image of a plant and our abiding, because even as I've learned a little bit about cultivating the earth and, you know, how the roots matter and the health of the plant, and it is a process. It is not always that you just plant things and they grow and bear beautiful fruit. It does take cultivation, right? It takes healthy, taking care of pruning, making sure all kinds of things happen. And again, that's not an earning thing. It's just a beautiful picture of roots growing deep and think, you know, that it does require some effort on our part to be rooted in Christ in order to bear good fruit. Yeah. He says, make your home in me as I make my home in you. Mm. I'm going, wow, Jesus, he's not just a tenant. He's the owner of the house, but he's also living in it. So I'm going like, oh, wow, if he's living inside here and I'm supposed to live inside him, there's this, this reciprocity of relationship that I just find exciting because I realize it's not just a religious. I go to church on weekends and pray and read my Bible and do you know, devotional things. No, no, it's a lifestyle seeking mm -hmm. his presence, but his presence is in us. As I open my heart and my mind and orientation to, to pursue the presence of God, these are the kinds of ingredients and scriptural pointers that give us how to do it. That's right. That's right. And, and it does work. Well, Roger, thank you so much for being here today. Um, your book, Pursuing God's Presence, I have really enjoyed it. And so I thank you for your time. Don't forget to share the show with a friend via text, email, or on social media. If you share it on social media, tag me so I can stop by and say thank you. You can tag me at Grace Enough Podcast underscore Amber on most all platforms. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.